Tuesday morning there will be, I don't know how many kids yet that will be here for Vacation Bible School. I do know that Hope said this week that there are 54 volunteers that are working with Vacation Bible School this week. And that's fantastic. Thank you very much for those who are volunteering. Um, and just by the way, there is, I know, a time this afternoon when they're going to be getting the, ready, the building ready. So if you uh, want to stick around and help get the building ready for Vacation Bible School this afternoon, we'd, be, we'd love to have you do so. Uh, I know that there are some who are baking cookies and doing various things for that. And so get all of that done and we're going to have a great Vacation Bible School. I'm excited about it. It starts Tuesday morning. If you haven't registered your children yet, uh, they need to be here at 930 to register on Tuesday. So we're excited about that. Normally, uh, I preach from the Bible. On Sunday mornings, when I uh, have something that I'd like to say to the church, it comes from Scripture. This morning, I don't have my Bible with me. And normally, I always preach from the Bible, but today, no Bible. You think, this is impossible. This is unheard of. He's got nothing to say then. Well, I actually do have some things to say. We have been focusing on what the world might be looking for in the church. And we've approached this like, okay, church, you say you're disciples of Jesus, you say you have the message of Christ, you say that you have something of benefit to me and to the world, bring it on. Tell me what it is that you have for me that's of value. And I think we do have some things that are of value. And so since we're talking about the unchurched this morning, I wanted to make reference to a book that's been written by Tom Rainer called The Unchurched Next Door, in which he looks at the world through means of a survey and asks the question, what are people like out there in the world and what is their attitude toward church? And what he does is he categorizes people in terms of their interest or their openness or their willingness to hear the gospel if they're unchurched. And it goes like this. He categorizes some people as what he calls U1s. They are highly receptive to hearing and believing the good news. They know something about Christianity and have a positive attitude toward the church. U2s are receptive to the gospel and willing to hear a message from the church. U3s are identified as neutral with no clear signs of being interested, yet perhaps open to discussion. U4s are group a group who demonstrates resistance to the gospel, but no antagonism. And then U5s, the most secular, are highly antagonistic and even hostile to the gospel. And the letter U before each of those numbers simply means unchurched or stands for those who are unchurched. So you have different classifications of unchurched people. These are the people who live next door to you or who work with you or with whom you go to school. And they have different kinds of attitudes toward what it means to be uh, hearing the gospel and how receptive they are. Now, here's what I think is particularly interesting. You ones are highly receptive to hearing and believing the good news, as we said, and they represent about 11% of the population in North America. Now, that's kind of interesting because that means that one out of 10 people that you meet is actually highly receptive to the good news of Jesus. Now, you just think about that. How many people do you meet? One out of ten is highly receptive to the good news of Christ. The U2s are receptive to the gospel and willing to hear a message from the church. They make up about 27% of those around us. Now again, that's highly interesting. You add up 11 and 27 and you get 38 every time. 
38% of the people, more than one-third, are in some sense receptive to the good news of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I have to admit I was a bit surprised by that. Shocked, maybe, to think in terms of over a third of our culture being willing to listen to the gospel. Of the U3s, 36% are identified as neutral with no clear signs of being interested, yet perhaps open to discussion. Now, again, you add up those numbers, 74% of the population, did I add that right? Yeah. 74% of the population are in some sense open and at least not negative when it comes to the good news of Christ. U4s, the group that demonstrates resistance, is 21%. And look at this, the most secular are highly antagonistic and even hostile to the gospel. Now, I must tell you that Rayner did his research on American churches, not on Canadians. There hasn't been a book written like this specifically for the Canadian culture. But let's imagine that it's relatively the same. I think, actually, that there would be some differences. I think that maybe this last category maybe go up a little bit in terms of percentage. I don't know. Maybe these numbers would be a little bit skewed, but I don't think they would be dramatically different. Like, I don't think that the U5s in Canada would be 85% as opposed to 5% in the United States. So I just think it's, it's interesting, these numbers and the willingness that people are around us to hear the good news of Jesus. Now, there's been another book written. A guy named Ed Stetzer did some research. And he was doing some research on the attitudes of the unchurched toward church that keep them unchurched like why is it that the unchurched stay unchurched when they look at the church in other words is there something about the church that really turns them off and it looks like this first of all they say that the church are hypocrites interesting claim you've heard that before i've heard that before i don't think they're talking about 100 percent of us let's hope not but anyway, that's one claim that they make, that the church is filled with hypocrites. Secondly, they say that churches are simply going after their money. And it's not hard to understand why would they, they would have that perception. You watch a TV evangelist, and so often he's going to be asking for their money, and so they tend to think that that's what churches do. Thirdly, church and church services are irrelevant. That's an interesting comment. What that means is that right now what we're doing, what I'm doing is irrelevant to people in our culture. At least some people would say so. Kind of interesting. Fourthly, they don't find authenticity in church. I don't know if that means that they all just think that we're fake as we come and worship or that we're not really as loving as we claim to be. I, there might be some inconsistency perhaps in our lives compared to what they think we should be. And then finally, they want to be involved in something that makes a difference. They don't want to be involved in something that just maintains itself. And sometimes when they look at the church, they see the church as an institution that's maintaining itself rather than something that's really making a difference. Well, in the spirit of asking the question that the world might ask of us, what do you have to say to us? What I want to do is I want to go through these five things and talk specifically this morning about the questions that the church or that the world has of the church. Maybe the challenges that the world has for the church in saying to us, this is who we think you are. And there's a sense in which I want to talk both to non-Christians this morning. So if you're, if you're not a Christian this morning and you may even have some of these attitudes about the church, I want to speak to you a little bit today. 
And then for those of us who are Christians, I want us to see that there are some things that we should say, can say, need to say to the world when it comes to their questions about who we are. And my answers look like this. The claim that we are, in fact, hypocrites. And I want to say to the world, you're right. We are. There's a sense in which we don't live up to what we want to be. If you're unchurched this morning, if you're not a Christian, I promise you that sitting all around you, there are people who are just like you. They don't always honor God. They don't always do what God wants them to do. And in fact, that's the core of our faith. Because what we say as Christians is that we are indeed sometimes hypocritical. We are not always what we want to be in Christ. And we so badly need the forgiveness of Jesus. We need the cross. Isn't that right, church? Isn't that true? Isn't it true of every one of you? Is there anybody here who is not in some sense a hypocrite? Anybody? Bold enough to say that they're not a hypocrite? In which case, if you raise your hand, we'll know you are. There's some sense in which we are because we fall short of what God wants us to be. And to the world, let us, let's just say right now, there is no pretense here. I'm not going to put on a face that says to the world, I'm perfect. John's nodding. He's an elder. He knows he's not perfect, and I know he's not perfect. Why would he put on a pretense? Why would he make the world think that somehow he's not what he really is? He is, in fact, not what God wants him to be all the time, and we have to, we must, throw ourselves on the grace of Christ and on nothing else. And so I fall at the foot of the cross knowing and recognizing my sinfulness and realizing how badly I need Jesus. And so you, unchurched, and I are in exactly the same boat. And that's what I need to say to the charge that we're hypocrites. Indeed, we are. Churches are simply going after the money, and to that I would say, actually, we're not. We actually really don't care that much about whether you give us your money. Now, I will say that for those of us who are in the church, it's a completely different story. And one of the reasons that you hear evangelists ask for money on television is because largely their audience is Christian. And they know that. And so they're asking for money for people who will come and support their ministries and so they can continue to do the things that they do. But churches typically do not ask of the unchurched for their money. And it's not our concern here. Now, oftentimes when we have the Lord's Supper, somebody who is uh, presiding and and getting ready to hand out the contribution bags will say, now we're not expecting those of you who are visitors today to give. It's our responsibility as Christians to give. And indeed, I think that's the case. Sometimes I kind of hesitate to say that. I almost want to say, no, don't say that. And the reason why is because as soon as we say to somebody, you don't have to give, it's not your responsibility, then we kind of say to them, this isn't as important maybe for you as it is for us. Well, I do think it's important. I think that people who are here on a Sunday morning honoring God, if they choose to give and want to give, boy, they should, they should be encouraged to do so. That's a part of our responsibility in terms of worship. But it is true. We don't have expectations in terms of the world giving us their money. The Lord's people need to take care of that. In fact, we consider, for those of you who are unchurched, we consider it sinful if we don't take responsibility for contributing financially to the work of the church and and carrying out our responsibility. 
So understand, actually, we're not asking for your money. If you give it to us, we're glad to use it for the Lord's purposes, but our goal is not to get your money. Church and church services are irrelevant. Boy, I got to tell you, this was just, this just hits me where it hurts. Because I'm largely responsible for what we do in our church services on Sunday morning. And I would say, often, you're right. I think there's a lot of times that what we do on a Sunday morning is not particularly relevant to people who are in the world. And that's one of the reasons that we need to think seriously about what we do on Sunday mornings. That's one of the reasons why we need to be open to change, open to have new things, new experiences happen in our assembly that might very well be more attractive to the world than what we currently do. Sometimes, church, and this will just hit some of us between the eyes, I know, and and it, it hurts me too, sometimes our songs are not as relevant as we would like them to be. Sometimes I think the world comes in and they hear our songs and they think, that sounds like it's 100 years old. And indeed, if you look at our songbooks, what you'd find is that they are 100 years old. And age doesn't necessarily make them bad, but sometimes our songs are written in a musical style that is simply irrelevant to people in the world who hear a completely different style of music all the time. And music today rules our culture. How many of you have an iPod that you download music on and listen to all day long? How many of you spend thousands of dollars to make sure that the stereo system in your car works the way that you want it to? Because we have such a musically saturated culture, we need to be aware of that element within our society. We have a musically saturated culture. Remember the story of Bill Hybels who you know, has for years now, been a major voice in Christianity in North America, and every Sunday morning he preaches to 20,000 people. When he was a teenager, he was really converted to Christ. He'd kind of grown up in a church a bit, but didn't really come to Jesus until he was a teenager. And when he became a teenager and and came to Christ, he thought, I want to start uh, evangelizing. And so he invited a couple of friends to church with him on a Sunday morning. And the friends came, and on Monday morning, when he went to school, they kind of cornered him. And they said, Bill, we've got to get you out of this group of people. Like something weird is going on among them. And the reason they were saying that was simply because the worship style that was going on in Bill Hybels' church at that point was so out of touch with where these teenagers were at that they thought it must be some kind of really bizarre, strange group of people and they couldn't believe that their friend had gotten caught up in this. Now we want to be strange, folks. I'd like us to be aliens in our world. We want to be strange in comparison to much of what goes on. But sometimes I think that the, the things we do make us almost intentionally irrelevant within our society. It's something we need to be working on and, uh, and, and ready to be changed on. Like, is your heart open to experiencing something on a Sunday morning in worship that allows us to be so relevant that the world will see that we have something to offer. Now, by the way, for those of you who are not Christians, I want you to know that if you think the things we do are irrelevant, please understand that these things mean an awful lot to us. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and if you're not experienced with that, and you think, what in the world is this, the little piece of bread and some grape juice? What's that all about? And we've already said we do this every Sunday. That is incredibly meaningful to us. 
and we have very good reasons for doing it. And so sometimes what we do may seem irrelevant when it's uh, actually incredibly relevant to us as Christians. And most people don't sing all the time in a group of people. Many people are not joined in a choir typically. But we have a choir that we participate in every Sunday morning because it's so meaningful for us to jointly sing praise to God. And so some of the things that we do are very meaningful and really relevant to us. They may look strange to you, but God does cause at times to be a peculiar people. And so we don't necessarily apologize for all of that because God wants us indeed to be different. They don't find authenticity in the church. And to that I would say in some cases yes, but in some cases really profound authenticity and relationships are, flourish, are flourishing. And I know there, there are times when uh, there are people here in our group today in whose homes I've never been. There are people that sit over here every Sunday morning and this is kind of where you sit. And there are people who sit over here every Sunday morning and this is kind of where you sit. And never the twain shall meet. It just happens. There are people here who probably don't even realize that there are people on each side of them in different sections of the auditorium. But it's true. And we want very much to have the kind of authentic, real relationships that I think so much of the world is calling for. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we, kept, we keep accentuating the notion of being in small groups. We're convinced, and churches have proved it over and over again, that the best place for authentic relationships to take place between Christians is in small groups. To try and do it on a Sunday morning, even though we intentionally have everybody stand and try and greet with one another, and every Sunday I say, find someone you don't know and go greet them. Have you ever heard me say that? Every week I say that. But still, relationship can't get built in this five minutes of sharing together on a Sunday morning. And so we intentionally ask people to be in small groups so that relationships can really be built. And also, I should say, there are many people in this room that have amongst others in this room, authentic, real relationships. For many of you, your best friends are sitting in this room right now. For many of you, you know that every Sunday you're going to see people who love you and appreciate you and encourage you and build you up. And it's a rich, rich blessing to be part of a church family. And so I want to say to the world, yeah, it's true. In some cases, we're a little bit too shallow. There are some times when we don't build relationships as much as we should. We don't take as, as, um, as being as crucial in our lives, the body of Christ, as we should. But for many of us, this is our church family. And it means everything to us. And we have here real, authentic relationships. And if you're looking for those, I can tell you this is a place that those can be built. The next thing I want to talk about is they want to be involved in something that makes a difference. And so do I. There are lots of churches that just exist. There are times when we just maintain things, we maintain the status quo, and I don't want to be that. I would say that the largest benevolent force on earth is the church of Jesus Christ. This has been cataloged over and over and over again. You go and you can look it up on the internet. You can see books, uh, publications by charities. The biggest benevolent force in the world is the church of Jesus Christ. And I think it's one of the great testimonies to the faith of Christianity and the, the authenticity that is there in that we minister to the world in a significant way. When a crisis happens, so many times churches are the first people there to do something good. If there's going to be a major earthquake in Haiti, we're going to start sending money. 
If there's going to be a, a tsunami in Sumatra, we're going to start sending money. And not just money, but doctors and nurses and people who will go and rebuild homes and take care of people. The Church of Jesus Christ consistently stands up to be there when there is need. And then the greatest influence on moral values in the history of humankind has been Christianity. I have no doubts about that one either. I was reading uh, this week from Bertrand Russell, who was an atheistic philosopher uh, in England back in the, oh, the 1920s through the 1950s. Many people would say he was one of the great atheist philosophers of all time. Bertrand Russell, in the middle of what I was reading, all of a sudden stopped to give credit to Christianity. And he said, if there's any force in the history of the world that has stopped infanticide, is that the way you say that? Infanticide, the, the killing of children, he said it's been Christianity. He said, prior to Christ, it was typical for cultures to oftentimes kill their own children. After Christianity, it happens very seldom. That was a noted atheistic philosopher attributing something significant to the advancement of the world through Christianity. And he's exactly right. It's the greatest force there is. But more important than either one of those things is the way in which our own church family contributes to things in our world. Now, I've got somebody special here this morning that I want to, he's, I've introduced him to you before, but I want to introduce him again, and that's Lauren Melting Towel. Lauren, would you stand for me, please, so people can see you? Thank you, sir. You can have a seat. I don't know if Lauren this morning looks different to you than he sometimes has been in the past, but he does. Significantly so. There are times in the past when I've had Lauren here, when we've had Lauren here on a Sunday morning, and when Lauren has had too much to drink. There are times when Lauren has been sitting here, and he's been drunk. Lauren has now not had a drink for over two months. Isn't that right, my friend? I asked him if I could share this with you this morning, and he said that was fine. We want to have an impact on the people around us for Jesus. And when the world says, we want to do something that makes a difference, I want to say our church family is in the business of trying to make a difference in people's lives. We do our Christmas project every year. We give money to Zambia, to Zimbabwe. We send missionaries to Papua New Guinea. We send people to, Zimbabwe, to Zambia to build schools. We have people in India and the Ukraine who are doing significant works for Jesus. And we have a significant responsibility that we carry out in our own area right here in helping to feed and clothe people through our clothing exchange, but then through our pantry every week. We have numerous people who come here and are fed. Families who come and we'll get a phone call two or three times a day. And a, a phone call that will come and say, there's a family of four, they need some food. Do you have some food? We never say no. They always come. We always give them food. And the reason that happens is because you folks give money or you set aside resources in order for us to make sure that that benevolence program can happen. I don't know how many times, Lauren, that I've given you food, but I bet it's over 100. 
there's a sense in which you have kept Lauren alive to the point where he now has a chance to live the kind of life that God wanted him to live. And his sobriety and who he's becoming as a person is in many ways attributable specifically to the ministry of this church. And Lauren's just one. There are many others, and there are others that are happening in the future, going to happen, because God has blessed us with that opportunity to serve. And so if you're not a Christian today, if you're unchurched, and you're wondering whether or not being part of this group of people could put you in a position where you'll be able to make a difference, I want to tell you that it's an emphatic yes, that we have a chance to make a difference in people's lives. And for those of you who are Christians who wonder sometimes, is the church doing anything of importance? Let me tell you that the differences that we're making in the lives, not just of Lauren, but in lots of other people's, is huge. When I think of the the orphans that we support in Zambia, like there are seven or eight or ten orphans for which we are directly responsible as a church in terms of feeding and clothing and taking care of them. When I think of the over uh, 500 children at Katungu who need a place to go to school, And I recognize that the reason they have three classrooms to go to school in is because we built them and sent Bob and Terry there to build them specifically. All of that is of such encouragement and blessing to me to know that that's the case, and it should be to you as well. My point this morning is that we have an awful lot that we can say to the world. When they say, bring it on, church, tell us what it is that you're doing. Give us your message of hope. Do you have anything to say to us? The answer is, indeed, we do. God has blessed us with great opportunities to influence our world. We're going to continue to do that. We need to have confidence and then seize opportunities to talk to all of these people that we said this morning are ready and willing to hear the gospel and let them see what the church is doing. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you this morning for the ways in which you work in our lives. I'm blessed and encouraged to have my friend here this morning who can hear what the church is doing. And Lauren has made such progress, and we praise you for that. But God, you're working all the time among us to do wonderful things. There are opportunities out there. Help us to see the hope and the vision and the possibilities for us doing wonderful things in your name. And lead us, God, to have the boldness and the faith and and confidence in you that we can get those things done through your power and grace. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.